1: Hi, everybody. Uh, Andy Richter here uh, with The Three Questions, yet again. And I am talking to a very funny actress and comedian um, who I've had the pleasure of working with.
2: Recently? Recently, yeah. You're a great actor. No, uh, Thank we, you. Does everybody know that?
1: Uh, I have enough time on a Wednesday to podcast, so I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm talking to Natasha Leggero, a fellow Illinoisian. Uh, yeah. Which I didn't know that for a long, long time. I, in fact, I think I just found it out when we started working together. I had no idea that you were from Rockford, Illinois.
2: You know, I go back once every two decades. and Oh, really? I just got back last week and I took Moshe there, my husband, for the first time. Oh,
1: wow. First time.
2: Yeah. He was uh, I kept taking him to all my favorite food places and I just couldn't get him impressed. But like, also, I feel bad because he's a vegetarian and we went. to It was my dad's funeral. And oh, was, I'm sorry. That's OK. Um, but it was just like the buffet was huge and everything had sausage, including uh, the salad. He's like, how does a salad have sausage in it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm
2: like, that's just the thing. And then I took him to my favorite restaurant, this place called Lino's, and it's a red sauce. And he just asked the waitress so many questions that finally she's like, oh, yeah, it's cooked in bone broth, the sauce. And so it's like he couldn't enjoy any of the foods. Like that was all I had to offer him. Yeah. So it was kind of a bummer, actually.
1: <laughs> my, yeah, that's that is I uh, I recently got engaged in my fiance. Congrats. Uh, thank you. Thank you. My fiance is vegetarian, too. And she has a very don't ask, don't tell policy about things like that. Like, yeah. if you say, is there any meat in something? And they say no. She's like, all right.
2: And I was like. Please don't ask them any more questions. He goes, "Well, I'm just gonna ask them if it's chicken bone broth." I go, "I know it's not chicken. It's <laughs> definitely not chicken because I didn't want them to say it was pork and then right. see me eat it because I don't right, eat pork. Right.
1: So yeah. Anyway, yeah, and it's just bones. Come on, <laughs> you know? it's just bones. They're already out of the animal, you know. <laughs> the real the real dirt had already been done. <laughs> we all, we often too, like when we get Mexican food." And because she, you know, it's mostly beans with her. And she'll be like, There's lard in these beans. And then just keep eating them. I know. Like, they're too good. Yeah, yeah.
2: There's this place called Allen B's. Have you ever been there? <clears throat> it's downtown LA. They have the most amazing bean and cheese burritos. It was like motionized like dates we'd always go on. Yeah. And then one day his friend called him up and he was like, Hey, that place you told me about, like, are you crazy? Like, they obviously have pork in those beans. And Moshe's just like, why did you tell me that? <laughs> so then we called Alan B's and we were like, hi, we were just calling to see if there's pork in your beans. And they were like, I'm so sorry. We want to make vegetarian, but we just can't. Like, it's- yeah. And so now we've never been back there and no more dates under the bridge eating the hot. They do have something on the lie menu. lie
1: to him, say, hey, they they changed their menu, I heard.
2: I tried, I know. Yeah. Like- But yeah, it's a bummer.
1: I know it is. Well, I mean, vegetarianism isn't a bummer. I don't mind. I mean, I don't know how you feel. I don't I mean, I don't mind. I don't mind. It's you know, there are certain things like there's certain recipes that I just I'm like, oh, man, I wish you could have this chicken, you know, like that kind of thing. But, you know, I'm not going to I'm I would never attempt to change somebody's choice in that matter. I just
2: think they should cheat once in a while.
1: Yeah, come on. And especially the planet's burning. Come on, eat some yeah. meat. Come you know, on. We're all going down the toilet.
2: Suck some bone marrow.
1: Yeah. Well, so he wasn't impressed with Rockford. Are you less <laughs> impressed with Rockford when you get back there?
2: Well, you know, what's funny is I've always loved historic homes and old homes. And one of the big problems I have with like New York, L.A., any city I go to is the constant construction and tearing down of old buildings. And it really made me appreciate Rockford because nobody wants to move there and they just have this like these massive like neighborhoods of houses from the 20s and 30s and you know it is very beautiful in that way yeah Um, modest houses but still like a lot of integrity they were just made in this and no one's like bulldozing them down to build apartments so i I appreciated that aspect i guess
1: yeah no i i have i follow a couple of those sort of Cheap houses, kind of Mm. Instagram accounts, Mm -hmm. and there's always these gorgeous old houses. But it's like, yeah, but you're gonna have to live in Decatur, Illinois. You can have this beautiful house for seventy grand, five bedrooms, all beautiful, like handmade woodwork everywhere. Lots of parking. You're gonna (laughs) you're gonna live in Decatur. Which is, you know, I mean, Decatur's a nice town, but it's just. Uh, no, it's you know, not,
2: Andy. Used... Don't lie I, to oh, listeners.
1: Listen, <laughs> there, I might have one or two listeners in Decatur. Uh, <laughs> so I got to be careful. I mean, we've already we're already kind of de facto shitting on Rockford, aren't we? A little bit. Of
2: course. Moshe goes, he goes, this town has major get me out of here vibes. <laughs> And I was like, you're right. That was my feeling. And I don't know what it is. It's like, I I, I I, wish I could. I wish I could. Maybe it is the lack of progress.
1: Well, it is. It is. It's like that the world just doesn't work that way anymore, where there's like a railroad town. You know, they just don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are kind of railroad towns, but nothing. You know, there's no like light industry anywhere anymore much. You know, it's just kind of those little uh, Illinois towns. Although I do. Do you ever pine for like? Like, think like, oh, it would be nice to just come back here and get a nice old house and sit here, wait for the grave to come, you know.
2: Andy, never. Never. Maybe somewhere else. Santa Barbara, maybe. (laughs) okay uh, okay South of France. Monaco would be nice. (laughs) I could buy a house there and quit the biz. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not trying to go back there. The weather.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you still have uh, family there? Much?
2: This is my husband's. Mother trying to FaceTime me.
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Put her on. When I get on the phone with my mom, it takes forty-five minutes minimum.
2: Oh, I know. I know. mean, I think that's the Midwest or something. Because yeah, it's it's never enough. Yes. I, and it's probably because they live in the Midwest and there's nothing else to do. You can't go outside. It's cold mm-hmm. out eight months out of the year. You know, you
1: got lots of time. And sure, why not talk? That was that was another. Illinois thing or, you know, another Midwestern thing that I've seen. And I have Midwestern friends that still kind of this way, like sit down at a table at a restaurant and then just strike up a conversation with the folks next to you. And, you know, like and for me, that's like, why are you talking to those people? Come on. They're just going to want to talk the entire time. But that's Midwest, uh, you know, like, yeah, sure. Why not have a chat with some folks? It's like, because it's exhausting.
2: Yeah, it it can be rough. And then I hadn't been home in so many years. And then we went to this restaurant and the waitress came up to me and she was like, another waiter here said that you're a comedian. And then he showed me what you look like with makeup on. She's like, is that you? (laughs) So it's it's always kind of like a backhanded.
1: (laughs) Of course. Yeah. You know, you give a little, you take a little.
2: Is it nice? No. but No.
1: (laughs) That that is true. There is kind of that, you know, this notion that like, oh, you know, like I remember once my mother listening to that John Cougar Mellencamp song, uh, Small Town, Mm. you know, and when they got to the line about people in a small town, let you be just what you want to be. She said, (laughs) bullshit.
2: (laughs) She sounds cool. I talked to her for 45 minutes.
1: Well, if you like symptoms, yeah, then, you know, you can. <laughs>
2: oh, my mom has a friend who kind of spies on me because my mom doesn't follow oh. me on Instagram. Oh, but then I
1: hate that shit.
2: If I do a screenshot of her, like at one point she was telling me she was, I was on a TV show and she's like, do they have it at the library? You know, and like she only watches TV. <laughs> she can rent at, on a DVD from the library. So I posted that, you know, making fun of her. And then right away, she, she emails me. Someone sent me this. So it's like someone's like monitoring my stuff to let her know yeah. when I really talking likes a
1: snitch. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like who likes a snitch? It's just like somebody did that once on a very, very early podcast. It was actually, it was on Mark Maron's WTF. Mm. And I went on there years ago. Like I barely knew what podcasts were and I went on there and I spoke very freely about kind of complicated relationships with both my parents some motherfucker gets on an email, you know, because I'm like, they're not going to be listening. I mean, if I don't know what a podcast is, they don't. <laughs> Somebody fucking emails my dad like, uh. hey, here's here's your. And if they listen, they knew that, like, it was kind of complicated.
2: Yeah. If you're listening, don't snitch. Don't you know? snitch. Just We're...
1: let us bitch about our people. <laughs> they're bitching about us. They're just not doing it on a podcast, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, now, uh, you started acting. Now, this is crazy, like because these two things don't go together. Grew up in Rockford, started acting as a child.
2: Okay, I, I have to say, and I went to the old theater I was in. It was called New American Theater. It was a regional theater. So from a very young age, I just got very lucky. Like my mom was waiting in line to put me in swim classes at the Y, and they were out. So there was like acting classes at the Y. So she put me in that. And then the teacher had remembered my a uniform because I was in Catholic school and they found me and they were like, we need a kid for our play. And then I just became the resident child actor. Oh, wow. And, you know, it really shaped me and it was probably since age 10 or 12. And so every year, not just every year, would I do the Christmas Carol, but then they would like, you know, work me into the Shakespeare play and work me into, you know, uh, what was that? I was our like Our
1: town know. or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. like,
2: it actually like, Really shaped me, and I was like, I think one of my, like, Our Town, and then... Um, music
1: Man? I bet Music Man? There no? weren't a lot
2: of musicals. I see. Inherit the Wind was a good one, because I actually, it made me not believe in Catholicism anymore, because I was oh. one of the town people listening to, like, these Darwin theories, you know? I'm, like, 10 years old listening to this, like, debate right. about creation... And I think it, like, really helped me, like, develop my mind a little bit, too, because, like, I was just yeah, sitting yeah. in plays. But anyway, yeah, so I was I was the child actor, and I get, got to hang out with, like, basically down-on-their-luck actors from Chicago. Like, you know how I'm sure an actor in a- Equity is not happy to be in a play in Rockford acting right. like a third grader from uh, St. James <laughs> Elementary. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so so I did get to start my acting that way.
1: I mean, and are these actors, they live in Rockford and they just like work at this theater and it's like a repertory company?
2: It's like half professional, half townspeople. Locals,
1: oh, okay, wow. <laughs>
2: They're probably p- being put up in a bad hotel or a bad, more, more likely bad, ha- like government housing or something. Right,
1: right, like some shitty condo.
2: Exactly, yeah, to yeah. be for here for the run of Romeo and Juliet and they're getting their actors' equity, you know, minimums
1: met, so they can still have health insurance, probably. Right now, when as a kid, does it just seem glamorous and fantastic, or are you were kind of have some sense that this is sort of a, like an area of acting that's a little grim?
2: Well, it's funny because I I loved the acting part but I when I would look at all the actresses, I was I I remember always thinking, why do they dress so bad? It was just, <laughs> just because they. They were probably, you know, they weren't glamorous. They were more like theater actors. And they
1: were probably broke, too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: Because <laughs> you think of acting, you're like Marilyn Monroe. Right. And then you see these actors. But, um, you know, I, I definitely fell in love with it. And I had a, a relatively bad home life. We just had like a one of my brothers was a problem child who kind of ruined a lot of the childhood experiences. So I think that for me, it was an escape. Uh, to just kind of be doing my own thing, be in the theater. And I was pretty much set on my path then. And I thought yeah. Ju- Juilliard would accept me. They did not. Um, but I just kept auditioning for like any school and made that my goal in life to get out of Rockford and be acting in either New York or LA. So
1: Wow. Were the... Adults around you in the theater, like, were they pretty indulgent? Like, you know, when when like adults that don't have any responsibility for children treat children like adults. I you was know what I mean. Def-
2: I think that definitely helped my comedy in a way. Like, I was always hanging out with like you know catty men, catty gay yeah, men, yeah. and like right. women who hated their husbands. And I remember like I would learn all these words. I'd come back to school and be like, oh yeah, Blanche from the Golden Girls, she's a slut. And like everyone's like slut. What's a slut? <laughs> and I was just always getting in trouble for bringing back language
1: right into right. the classroom. Yeah, now, like does that make you kind of not give a shit about other stuff once you start kind of being exposed to life in the theater at a child? Mean, like. Like yeah. Math and English and football and, you know, or playing sports or whatever, or you know.
2: Let's just say there are large gaps in my education where like,
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> like
2: someone will mention something and I just have to keep my mouth shut. And I'm like, oh, OK, yeah. Like, you know, And now I'm interested in history. But then I was like absent most of like the academics. Like I remember cheating on my SATs. Like, I just was like, I'm just going to, during the math portion, I'm going to look at that person. During the science portion, I'm going to look at that person.
0: <laughs> the English was
2: always good. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like, you know, I didn't know England was an island till I went there when I was 23. Like, you know, I I, I was into checkoff.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you managed. Want to make mom's day? And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network. So whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a crow?
2: I mean, I remember being in college and them telling me, like, you know, you gotta take these science classes, even if you're getting a theater criticism degree. And then some teacher tipped me off and he goes, if you take science summer school, a D is passing. So then I had started taking all my science classes (laughs) in the summer and the teachers would just pass me. So, yeah, it was I'm not proud of that. And little did I know we'd have a global pandemic where I had to basically be a scientist and understand aerosol (laughs) BPMs.
1: Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Or you just stay home and then you don't have to understand anything other than just stay home.
2: I know. But I had a little kid and I was so scared. I was like a new mom. So it was just well, very- how how
1: soon before the pandemic.
2: She was like, you know, one and a half. And then it happened. And now yeah. she's like four or five. You know, she's like going to be five. So
1: it well, I mean, did you notice that? Like, did you like did she get like de-socialized? Did she start getting socialized and then became Unsocialized. She was a
2: very social child, and then all of a sudden, there were no kids. And so, she would, I just remember her looking out the window one day, just being like, Other kids?
1: You know, yeah, yeah. I'm
2: sure she bounced back, but it was just like, you know, I I was trying to, I I just realized early on, no one's going to tell you what to do because they're wrong and they're giving you wrong information or different information. So, I was trying to at least figure out if she could be outside with other kids, you know, and I regret that I didn't take more risks then because I think it would have been fine. But I think we were all in a position of just being scared and some people yeah. deal with their fear in different ways. So
1: you, looking back, it's like you didn't know anything. Yeah. Uh, now you went to, you stayed in Illinois to go to college. Yeah. Uh.
2: Well, <laughs> that's after Juilliard wouldn't let me in. Rada wouldn't let me in. DePaul wouldn't let me in. I mean, I like, I tried to audition for, like, every big school. I assumed they would let me in just based on my headshot because I was already, you know, a professional actor in my head right. because I was working with these people. No, didn't get in. Um, so then finally I got a small scholarship at University of Illinois, which has a pretty, you know, substantial theater program. They have... I think Laurie Metcalf graduated from there and Gary Sinise. Like there's a there was like a history of great actors coming from there. Um, Sean Hayes, I think, is from there. So I was OK with that. But every day I would just like look at backstage and be like, how can I get out of here? You know, because it's in Bloomington Normal.
1: Oh, that what, Illinois State.
2: Yeah. Illinois. State. Yeah. 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 So then finally, one day I opened up the backstage and it was like Stella Adler, New York City. So I like went to some guy's hotel room in Chicago. I mean, who knows? I I I was so brave then. I just was like, I need to get out. Um, and yeah, I somehow got into this program. So then I was able to like move to New York. And that was the right. goal.
1: And all those you have to audition for every single one of those things, right? You know, like Juilliard, did you did you audition, you know? Oh,
2: for sure. I mean, Juilliard picks like twelve people, you know? And when I was auditioning, it was like you know, the callback list was like 16 men, you know, it was Mm -hmm. like that, but whatever. I mean, I'm sure I was terrible. And then RADA, I remember I got a callback because I happened to, I was doing, because what I would do in Illinois State is I kept doing um, study abroad because I hated being there. (laughs) So I was like, can I go to Canterbury? Like I would just go somewhere else. So then I went to Canterbury and then when I was there, I went to London to audition for RADA. Um, I did get a call back, but I did not get in. Um, but yes, those are very, very hard programs to get into. Um, and Stella Adler, like I was like so thrilled I got in, but then I saw the other people in my class, and I was like, oh, they just let everybody. <laughs> But there were some very talented people, but there were some people where I was like, oh my God, what is happening? They could
1: sign a check.
2: Exactly. Like there was this girl who was a mother of three who had gotten struck by lightning twice. I remember that. Oh. Like, but not an actor, you know what I mean? And then there was another guy who like, every time we would do the vocal exercises, he was like so tone deaf, he would just start screaming. I mean, it was so funny. Like it was just like, but, it, I, you know, it was a great education and there were really great teachers. And I feel like it really kind of sparked my interest in becoming like a better actor.
1: There was the same thing in Chicago with improv. It was. Oh, yeah. You'd have, you'd have like amazingly talented people whose names you still hear and who are working today. And then like, you know, like somebody that just like was barely verbal. And like, <laughs> you know, like why are you here? What are you doing? Uh,
2: okay, you know. Well, we would have to put a cork in our mouth and then we'd have to go and then we'd take it out and go like, ah. And every time this guy would just be like, <laughs> And it was just so funny and we would all just laugh and like, you know, that, that, that it's good to be around, you know, different levels and, you yeah. know, I feel like my standards were really raised there and I would recommend it to anyone.
1: Yeah. Like that dissatisfaction. That you have. I mean, I feel like that can be a real engine when you're younger, you know, Mm -hmm. like I got to get out of here. I got, you know, whether it's Rockford and then it's. And did you go right to college, right to Bloomington Normal, like right after high school? Yeah, my mom,
2: like that was very important to her. So, I mean, I mean, the whole the whole point of college is to like it open up your mind to things you would have never thought of. I think, you know, like for me, I. I took. I remember I took a class at Hunter College because once I was in the state school program in Illinois, I transferred to New York, and the City University of New York has great schools. And I was at Hunter, and Hunter. Um, I, I remember I took. It was. It was like a women in literature class, and I had. I was made to read *The House of Mirth* by Edith Wharton, and I liked it so much that like I ended up creating another period based on my memories of that. First time I was ever forced to read something like that, you know, I and I think that that's what college I think people forget. It's about opening up your mind to things that you wouldn't know. So, yeah, yeah, that's why I think it's such a positive thing. Um But to answer your question, wait, what was your question? Well,
1: my I was just trying to get oh, it. Brave. Like, how? Yeah. Just no, just how kind of an unhappy home situation can make you, you know, it kind of kicks you out of the nest where you're going to go do stuff that you might not have done if everything was happy.
2: It's almost a blessing in a way, because I have friends who always wanted to leave their hometowns, but were so close with their families, they couldn't. Yeah. And Moshe really wanted to be a writer in New York, but his, his family was all in California, and he was so connected to them, he didn't want to leave them for New York. Whereas some of us were like, oh, yeah, get me out of here. I'm going to do my own thing. And it gives you that bad home life actually gives you energy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's the wind beneath your wing.
1: Like, does your stand up come back to that a lot? Do you think, you know, is it sort of born out of not necessarily like here's a bit about, you know, my fucked up family, but just kind of, you know, it puts you on rocky footing. You know, I mean, ideally, and, you know, as a mother, like ideally, you're supposed to just kind of give them this steady kind of, atmosphere. You know, that's like part of the one of the main parts of the job. Give them this steady atmosphere because they can sense if it's not steady. And if it's not steady, that starts to make them kind of ask more questions, I think. I don't know.
2: Define steady. Like as long as we love our kids, is it okay that sometimes she's in a hotel with me and sometimes she's in a house and sometimes? Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I I mean. Emotionally steady. Like, you know, no matter where we are, you're going to be taken care of. you know, that you're always safe and that I'm always here and that this is always going to and that we're always going to be here and not kind of like, you know, where it seems like every day it's all going to explode.
2: I know. I know, And I think we're so much more conscious of that now. And I actually write in my book about this a lot, too. I mean, our parents like my mom was 23. They people have a baby with the first guy they meet at the beach. And now it's like, okay, this is a family. And then everyone's fighting. And you know, when you I had my kid at 43 from eggs that I froze at 38. And, you know, my it's a completely different experience. <laughs> like, yeah, my yeah. life is full. I, I I have money to have someone help me if I need that, you know, babysitters, a nanny, like so I can work. And, you know, I have a lot of wisdom and it's it's just a totally different situation.
1: Yeah. So you're you don't have any regrets about about waiting. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. I, and- yeah, because I think, you know, like, my fiance had a had a. She's a single mom who had a child late, you know, later in her forties, and um, and I I do like just from watching her, I do feel like she got to have a. There's no sort of like, oh, this kid came along and and stopped me from living, you know, because it's like. There was already plenty of living done, you know, like you kind of got a lot of stuff out of the way, you know, just I mean, not necessarily out of the way. You just but you didn't because that's, I think you know, a kid comes along and they take up your life. And people that don't realize that or don't understand that at the beginning, they get real there. They, it fucks them up because they're like, wait a minute. It's all about this kid now. And the answer is, yeah, it's kind of all about this kid now.
2: Yeah. And it's like you're probably your most fun decades are your 20s and 30s. So it's like, why not do that? And then your peak earning is 30s, 40s. And it's like, you don't want to be like having, it's just nice to be able to have resources when you have a kid. And also take time to meet the right partner and someone because I always thought, my therapist told me this, he's like, you're a situational breeder. You'll breed if the situation's right. Like, I I didn't need to have a kid, but then I met Moshe, and I was like, oh, he would be a good dad. Okay, that's someone, I identified him as someone who I could, like, do this with. Now maybe it'll be fun, because I grew up around a single mom. I saw how hard it was. That that wasn't of interest to me. So then when I met him, I was like, okay, I can do this. So taking the time, I think, was good. I mean... I guess I wish I was 20 that I could probably roll around, you know, have have a little more energy.
1: Right. Uh, Do you do you think that it's made you a better mom like that, that knowing yourself more and being, you know,
2: I'm sure in some ways, but in some ways I feel like I'm overly fearful. And because I was 43 when I had a kid, like I know I'm not having another one. And so I'm like, uh, you know, there's this is this is my only shot. <laughs> I hope I'm doing it right. Yeah, I can yeah. definitely overthink it. And, you know, just just the managing fear, maybe especially as a mom is something that I really struggle with because they they become so important to you as opposed yeah. to like, not that I wasn't important to my mom, but she had three kids. One of them was like jumping off roofs, you know, and then it was like, uh, try, you know, no money. And you're kind of in in um, uh, what's the word? You're in survival. Whereas, like, I have the luxury, you know, I have a lot of time. I have time on my hands to get worried. (laughs) I only have one kid.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So you end up in New York um, and you're at Hunter College. How does that turn into a stand up?
2: well, then I was like gung ho New York. I had my Stella Adler degree, my Hunter College theater criticism, criticism degree. I try to get an agent in New York. And I finally get this guy to call me back, this guy, Al Flanagan. He, like, had a real, like, it was in Times Square. I went. I did my Darlene monologue from Balm and Gilead. He's like, that was amazing. Come back next week. Do it for the whole office. I was like, okay. I mean, I couldn't believe, like, this was happening. I get there. I do it. I cry. It was like this. I was basically just doing an impression of Laurie Metcalf, by the way, because I saw her on a video In New York, they have like, they used to have a library where you could go watch people's performances. (laughs) Oh, wow. So um, I I would, it was like all of the, you know, best performances collected. So I I saw her at Steppenwolf do this character. So I kind of was like doing this, like very inspired by her performance, but it was still good. Long story short, I get, he goes, okay, call me at three o'clock. It's like, okay, I get to hunt. I get to the Hunter student center. I'm at a payphone. I call him and the guy goes. I talked it over with the rest of the agency, and we've all come to the conclusion that you're too short to ever make it as an actress. (laughs) So, you know, I'm young, naive. I don't have anyone in the industry as a mentor, so I just think he's right. Right. And I, like, fall to my knees at the Hunter Student Center, heaving. You know, it was, I'm sure, extremely embarrassing. Um, And so I think I just was very crushed. And I think then I was kind of like, OK, well, if New York is this hard, I'm going to move to L.A. It's got to be better there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so
2: I moved to L.A. And- that's
1: incredibly resilient. That That's like there's a lot of like, fuck me, no, fuck you in there, you know? <laughs>
2: Well, I still kind of thought he was right, but I like didn't have an option. Yeah,
1: but you didn't quit. You didn't quit, you know. And also, that's fucking ridiculous. Like, oh,
2: he goes, he goes. It happens sometimes, you know. Like, there's Holly Hunter, but she's
1: yeah, yeah. She's an anomaly or yeah, he's like can
2: happen, but it was like he was just so sure of it, like it was a fact.
1: That's so stupid. That's- Al
2: Flanagan. So if he's still an agent, fuck you, Al Flanagan. <laughs> so then I got to L.A. and I started to go to auditions. I got some somehow I got an agent. And then um, I just started noticing in the in the um, waiting rooms, like the comedians were like so much cooler. And then I would get auditions for comedy stuff. And I was like talking to them like, who are these people? This just seemed like superior than like the actors.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I
2: was very drawn, I mean, just to more it.
1: fun, just more fun and more alive. And
2: they were just making me laugh. I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. I, I think I was just starting to get attracted to to the comedy aspect and then wanting wanting to do comedy. And I remember in my acting stuff in college, people would laugh when I didn't know why. I'm like, why are they laughing? That's, you know, this I, I'm a this is spring awakening and I'm supposed to be a, a you know, a, a girl with dropsy who's about to commit suicide. Why are they laughing at what I'm saying? So I feel like people were always kind of laughing at my delivery, and and then I think I just started doing comedy, and it was it was working. And then someone said, "Oh, you should try stand up comedy." So I think you know, for me, my whole approach was I took every single acting comedy thing I could find in L.A. Like I took you know sitcom writing class, improv, groundling, second city, like anything that had any comedy I would take so that was kind of my approach and um and I just tried stand-up once and I like really responded to it and I had a great set so I just kept doing it so I don't know do you have that you, you, you've done stand-up before haven't you
1: yeah a little bit but I uh and I, I've talked about it before on here that like I don't like being on stage by myself that much like mm-hmm. in. I, from the early days of being an improv, I kind of figured out, and I mean, and I don't know, I don't know why this is. I don't necessarily think that it, there's some sort of like value judgment on it, but like an audience is nice, but I don't live for them. You know what I mean? Like mm. I don't like you don't I live don't live for
2: their approval because you probably got love from both your parents. I yeah, I mean, you know, it's
1: in a, of a sort. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, but I. I guess that I is part of it because usually the people that really needed it, I could tell, Oh <laughs> honey, you poor thing, <laughs> you know, you're still, you're still trying to get it, get those turnips to give you some blood. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I, I, to me, it was always about the being funny with funny people. Like that was always that that was the charge to me and an improv too. Uh, when you you know when you're doing it and you're good at it surprising yourself that like holy shit i just said i said something great and i don't know where it came from like that Mm. was that was a charge That's Um, cool yeah but i just i've tried stand-up and i wish i could like it more because it's 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 easy you know in terms of like i don't mean easy in terms of like being good at logistically. I mean, like, yeah. You don't need a lot of shit. All you got to do is step up and and say stuff. You, know? you don't you have you don't to need...
2: split your money.
1: You don't yeah, have to and, share your no, mic. <laughs> exactly. You don't have to write anything. Well, I mean, you do write things down, but you kind of not, you know what I mean? And so I wish, I wish I could, but I just, I had, I just, had, I had, a. there was a moment once I was hosting something at the San Francisco Sketch Fest. And I was supposed to do, I was emceeing and I was supposed to do like 10 minutes. And I got like four or five minutes in and I realized, I don't like this. Like, I don't like, like these people are laughing and stuff. And that's not, like I say, it's nice, but it's not like, oh, yum. Now I can keep going. You know, my, you know, my vital fluids have been replenished. You know, it's like, eh, it was nice.
2: There's something dark about stand-ups a lot of times. And I feel like they... You know, imp- improvising. I was always taught to say yes, and I think standups kind of say no. Yes. <laughs> they're like critical, and you know, the quintessential standup, like Bill Burr. You know, it's like how can I like poke holes at everything and like get the fuck away from me? You yeah, know, yeah, it, yeah. it's a different vibe, and I think yeah. and also there is a certain need for approval that maybe you guys are a little more um,
1: well-rounded and. <laughs> oh, they're still they're still huge. I mean, I mean, there were some. There were some world-class needy people. I'm sure. Right. And, and I, you know, and for me, it was always funny to, whereas if somebody, you know, got on stage and they really needed it and they really needed to soak up, I was always like, go right ahead, go up there, get it, <laughs> get, it get it, hon. You know, like there, there's plenty to go around and you go up there and get what you need. And cause I just was, I don't know. I just never, and I always felt, <laughs> it also felt tawdry. Like there's just something about like, needing an audience's approval that just mm-hmm. that when you sense that real need from a performer of like i need your approval strangers from in off the street please love me because i have a lack of love like i think that's the dark side what you're talking about <laughs> okay i quit <laughs> no well then i mean but there is there's a huge difference between because there are some there's some i mean I, you know i've known in million comics And there are some that seem to be misery addicts, like they love being miserable. And then there's other ones like you who are fun and friendly and like to play around and like to joke with other people. And that's, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, that's that's those are my favorite kinds of people, like people that want to have fun. That's I don't care where you're from or what what your line of work is. If you want to have fun, we'll probably get along. I
2: love that aspect, too. And I also love how comedians can look at what is the funny part of almost anything.
1: Yes. And that to me
2: takes like this mental acuity that I just I I don't know. I'm very attracted to that. You know, yes, I think it's cool.
1: It's also like a secret skill, like to find the worst, you know, like to find something funny in the worst thing that you can't really do with any other group of people. You know what I mean? Like, it's like your secret little process of kind of being evil, but you understand like, no, this isn't evil. This is a kind of coping. And we all have these same kind of brains that might be slightly broken in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so we can say these awful things about things that are just terrifying. So yes,
2: I I feel very lucky. And I and that's what's so sad about COVID because I feel like comedians had such a great rapport and it really felt like the second family. And now I feel like two years from performing and two years off. And now a lot of the places have shut down and there's a lot of division with comedians and the right and the left. And I I don't know. It's, it's kind of sad, but hopefully we'll all come back at some point. Yeah.
1: I, I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's like, you know, the world's a mess. So yeah. Comedy's kind of a mess too. We got to keep at it. I know I'm I'm trying. Here we are. We're doing podcasts and shit like that. (laughs) That's something when you started doing stand up and I haven't done much stand up, but I do remember there's just that first kind of, all right, I'm going to get on stage and I need to make people laugh. And then as you do that more, you kind of start to have more of the thought of like, well, who am I up there and what am I trying to do up there? And and how did you sort of I mean, did that start to happen? And how soon did that happen? And and how did you answer it?
2: First of all, you have to go up a bunch. You have to go up like multiple times a week, way more than you think you do. And then you also have to, you know, people give you little tips like someone told me once, oh, your persona will find you. And so it's like the more you go up, the more you start to see, wait, what are people laughing at that I didn't even know was the funny part? And, you know, and then someone else tipped me off and they were like. What if you like wore like a like dressed more fancy on stage, then you wouldn't just be like some girl from Silver Lake being really critical. And then I started wearing like fancier clothes and seeing like, they would laugh harder at mean things. <laughs> 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 and I don't know. It's like a million things like that. And then someone else like Bobby Lee came up to me and he was like, hey, you should try to be funny before you start talking. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. OK. And then all of a sudden your mind shifts and you're like, oh, how can I be funny? in a way that's not just what I'm saying, you know? Yeah. And and then I would open for Tig and see how she would just play around so much and it really expanded my mind. And and so it's it's really about those 30,000 hours, I think, you know? yeah, and, and a dedication to it, into finding out like, what makes you funny? What, you know, what do you wanna write about? What's inspiring to you? And also letting it change. Like now that I have kids, like most of my stand-up is about having a kid, but now I have a child who's like, mom, why do you always say what I what I say to people? Don't because if she hears me telling a teacher an anecdote, something she said, she's like, don't tell people what I say. So now I'm like, OK, I guess I can't do a special now because when she's 12, she'll <laughs> look at it <laughs> and be pissed at me. Yeah. So I'm dealing with that right now. Like, what do I do? Like, should I just keep touring and not like make it in any kind of physical form so she could never see it, you know? Um, right, right. So it's it's always changing and morphing and, you know,
1: um, and well, I mean, but to continue on, you do you know, you do have kind of a comic persona that on stage, it's kind of like hoity-toity fancy lady.
2: And that changed. I mean, when I first started on stage, I imagined myself as this like you know, larger than life person, even though I had like no money and I was driving like a convertible from Rent-A-Rec that had like a missing car door. And like, <laughs> you know, I was I was trying to be glamorous under like all of this duress. So right. that kind of was what started that. Um, but you know, once you have a little bit of success, your persona and things change a little bit, you know? So, Yeah. and you got to read the globe a little bit too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you mean the the paper the globe or the actual world
2: <laughs> both but <laughs> take
1: input from the universe
2: yeah you know like things change and you know there, i'm I, i'm sure i used i remember making fun of homeless people you know but that was like 25 years ago and it's like things you know then you all of a sudden become a little more empathetic towards yeah. things and you know i i think it's like a process
1: i've been thinking about this a lot lately because I, I feel like I know so much more and I'm so like, I just like things happen in my life that would have knocked me off my feet 20 years, 15, 20 years ago. And now I'm just older and I can, I'm calmer. And I just, there's so much in me that's like, God damn, if I just was this wise 20 years ago oh my God, I could have torn up the world. But then I think like, no, that's too much power. That's you know, like in the Lord of the Rings when that one elf, when they suggest like (laughs) you take the ring and she like starts glowing and says like, I would have been too powerful and I would have ruined the world. Like, I feel like that's sort of what happened. That was, that's why when you're young, you kind of have to not know stuff because you'd just be too powerful if you were, You know, if you had the poise and wisdom of a 50-year-old in a 25-year-old body, you you know, you'd probably turn into Hitler.
2: I mean, that's kind of what A-list actors are, right? Or people who, like, just get it all early.
1: I guess. Who who
2: seem like they have it all. I mean, I definitely get annoyed when I look at myself, like, because I'm like, wait, I looked so good then. How how come I didn't have uh, jobs happening then? Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. once once your wrinkles start setting in and, you know,
1: my thing is, I look at old pictures of myself and I go, damn, I look good. And I thought I looked like shit. Like I, <laughs> I was walking around thinking like I'm a fucking slob and I look at these pictures. And I'm like, yeah, that was that in that picture. I'm hating myself. But damn, look at me. I look pretty fucking good, you know, I relatively know. speaking. So when, when did you start to kind of I mean. Did the acting kind of turn around after the stand-up? sort of after you kind of got a name for yourself in standup, did that help get parts in acting or did it all just, you know, was it all kind of just coinciding together?
2: It definitely helped. And I think that I, I always had this like very general idea that I was going to be an actress. And then someone said once, like, what kind of actress? And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, again, You know, really just kind of staying at things, seeing where your talents are and what what people are responding to. You know what? Obviously, it's important what you want to do, but also how are people responding to it and what is the thing like, you know, finding out you're good at physical comedy or, you know, different things like that. So I think you just have to kind of go where the energy is a little bit. And um, let's just say I played a lot of strippers, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of women with no pants
1: right right and right. That, well yeah the 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 woman with no that character and that was on uh,
2: well it was on Burning Love it was on I'm Reno 911 yeah, yeah. but again this was no, so No was fun. that the,
1: were you no pants on Reno 911 too yeah oh my god <laughs> well you know you get good at something and then funny. you know <laughs> that you, you keep doing it <laughs> i
2: have no issues with it i was so happy to be and i think that was a big thing for me like I think Reno 911 might have been my first comedy thing. And I was like, whoa, these people are not only hilarious, but they're making me better. Like yeah. Tom Lennon is like running after me. I'm like this like woman who can't find her pants hanging out by her Camaro it, in the middle of the night drunk. And, Tom, and, I, and I remember at one point I, I asked Tom Lennon in character, I'm like, do you want a cigarette? And he's the police officer arresting me. He's like, oh, sure, yeah. And so he <laughs> smokes it, and then I run away. So it's like that saying, "Yes, like he made me so much funnier just by that amazing improv." Gives you another
1: bit, yeah, yeah.
2: I but I love it
1: so much of what you've done. I mean, like Reno Nine One One, Burning Love, and even and then when you uh, you and Ricky created uh, another period. These are all, and that show had so many funny, funny people. I mean, it's just like. It basically was, you know, if if someone's been on a stage at UCB or Largo there, you know, you see them in any of these shows. So you've been in very collaborative things, you know, like they're like for a stand up. You all you know, you are an ensemble actor in a wonderful way, uh, which I don't think happens with a lot of stand ups.
2: Well, maybe it's because I was already an actor.
1: Yeah, you think so?
2: And I went to school for it and I studied it and it was very important to me. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that, but I, I prefer, I, I prefer a more um, collaborative environment. I think that's very fun and fulfilling. Stand-up can be kind of like lonely, especially touring by yourself.
1: Yeah. Were you at any point kind of disappointed that you didn't, that you weren't like the fancy theater actor that you kind of set out to be when you were young?
2: You know, never. And I think that, I think a lot of, you know, maybe I just haven't gotten enough success, but you know how like some of the great comedic actors, like you'll see Steve Carell and they're doing something completely serious. You know, I I think that some people like after a certain amount of time, you want to like test yourself and do, but I I just like, I find comedy just so fulfilling (laughs) Yeah. that I don't have that desire to be like, or you see these like, you know, great actresses who are so serious and then they want to be like the wacky prostitute or whatever. And it's like, it's not really their casting. I don't know. I just, I'm always just, I I find comedy to be very high level for some reason.
1: Yeah. Oh, I don't blame you. I have done, I've done the little bits of drama and I always find it just less fun. Like I said, you know, like I, I, it's something's fun. I, you know, I kind of like, that's something I've learned over time. Is to kind of follow what's fun. I mean, you know, occasionally you got to work for a check. You know, and it's, of course, you got to do stuff that you'd rather memorize not some, do.
2: Some scientific terms for some money, but
1: uh... <laughs> uh, I'm talking about uh, even worse than that. Like where you know, like a few days of your life spent on something that you would be like, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> I know, saying lines that are, Ugh. but you know, life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network. So whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my loves a growing? Tell me about being married to a comedian. How, I mean, did you kind of get a sense once you started being in that milieu that, uh, you know, you've, you were civilians were dead to you at that. time.
2: <laughs> I definitely went through a phase where, like, if someone wasn't funny, I just have very low, like <laughs> very low tolerance, like for yeah. like, you know, it, it can be challenging and it's t- challenging now meeting moms that I have to be friends with. Yeah. Uh, through my child. So I'm, you know, constantly looking for that. Because I get to hang out with some of the funniest people probably in the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, Chelsea, we worked on Chelsea's movie together. She's a really good friend. Chelsea
1: Peretti. Yeah, Chelsea yeah.
2: Peretti. And she's just so funny and so smart. And it's like, it's hard to hang out with normal people. Yeah. <laughs> After you hang I out know. with people like that. Um, and, you know, same with Moshe. Like, you know, extremely smart and always always there as your life partner to be able to see what's the comedy thing in something that maybe isn't so funny. And so having someone like that around is very useful, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did you, now you, you you've got a book coming. Is it, yeah, it's coming out, right?
2: It comes out November 15th. It's called the world deserves my children and it's comedic essays about, you know, I, I, I had a baby later in life and I felt like I was really in my prime and the world wasn't. And, uh, you know, the, also there was just a lot of challenges, which I try to talk about. But I also talk about my own childhood and parenting in an, in an, in, in an environmental panic is how I put it. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people, myself included, I'm like, why, you know, the world's burning. Why should I have a baby? Isn't that rude to the baby? And, you know, just kind of dealing with all of all of those emotions. And um, I did come to the conclusion that it is worth having a child. But you'd have to read the book to find out all of the reasons why.
1: (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Well, it's in the title. The world deserves my children.
2: We can't just let the idiots have kids, Andy. That's
1: true. That's true. It is true. Going into motherhood, where I mean, did you have much hesitation? Like because you'd had, you'd had a a good long time to sort of be used to you know not having somebody depend on you like that. Was there Uh, was there hesitation in terms of that? You know, just
2: yes, and I definitely did not think I would ever have a kid. Um, I certainly didn't have any partner in the past that I was like, oh, they'd be a good father to my child. Like, it just wasn't. I, I was just really enjoying my life and my career, and I was very ambitious. And a child didn't really work into that. Um, yeah. Like I said, until I met Moshe, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, he could probably pick up the slack, and he could like, he's really smart, and he has a good relationship with his family, so he could help me. Yeah. You know, even like. I don't want to talk to a teenager by myself.
1: <laughs> you know,
2: like having some like support there would be nice. Yeah, it's too
1: scary. Uh, it's right. too scary. Teenagers are fucking terrifying. Jesus. Who knows so, where what they're where they're coming from?
2: And then you kind of get you, you it's always a whim. You know, you're like, okay, I'm gonna do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, you know, obviously I I didn't understand how big the rewards would be and that I would have this like amazing angel that like I get to live with, um, you know, who just spreads joy by breathing. And, um, you know, it's just this incredibly I mean, I want to say it's it's rarefied, but it's not because so many people have children, but it just feels like just this gift. And, you know, I'm so glad that I took that leap. And like I said, I grew up with a problem child, so I would never have another kid now that I got a good one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What, what, uh, what was the main inspiration behind writing a book about it? Was it, were you kind of things that you learned that you want to tell other moms, you know, or potential moms or?
2: It's definitely that. And, you know, I think that, in terms of like egg freezing and miscarriages and having to breastfeed and what if you don't want to breastfeed? And, you know, I think that there was, there's just so many things that mothers um, and, and have to come in contact with that there isn't a lot of conversation about. Um, mm-hmm. And also egg freezing is very new technology. And I, I didn't understand it when I did it. I, I froze one round and got eight eggs. I thought that meant I could have eight kids and I didn't even want one So I was like, I only did one round and we barely were able to have my kid like, you know, it was like down to they did the testing. Then it was down to four. Then Moshe blasted on them, And then it was only two survived. Then they put one up and it died. So it's like that was our last one. So, you know, just really understanding. And I try to, you know, obviously do it in a funny way. Talk about all the different aspects of it understanding when you really can get pregnant. And is a doctor just like ripping you off by telling you you could still get pregnant? So you spend another $17,000 at their facility trying to get pregnant, quote, naturally. So I, I just felt like there were so many aspects that I wanted to talk about, not to mention things about like, like I said, fear and love and how they're how they're connected somehow. And I didn't know that by giving birth to this child, I was giving birth to like, this eternal fear, like, I lived my whole life like with this joie de vivre, moving from like one city to, you know, going on a whim to Africa or Thailand or wherever. And now all of a sudden having a baby, I'm fearful of everything and having to struggle with those emotions. So, you know, I I, I think it's relatable. And, and, I you know, it's I tried to talk about all of the different aspects of it that... I hadn't really encountered, you know, how do you become a family? I read every self-help book about being a mother, but like no one really mentioned like how how to have a family. And, you know, I think Judaism and converting to Judaism and having that tradition actually really helped us with that. So, um, you know, just like looking at it from a lot of different aspects.
1: How do you deal with the fear with that fear? I mean, I imagine it was overwhelming at first.
2: Well, Moshe is just like constantly trying to get me to not be afraid. And so that's helpful to a point, but then we do butt heads a lot. So it's it's a challenge and I think it's something I struggle with every day. I, I think one of the things that's helped me is Moshe has told me you're actually that's not helping her when she sees that you're afraid and you're like, oh, my God, are you, are you OK? Like, if you're always like that, that's actually going to have a negative effect on her. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he phrased it in a way that's like it's not good for her, I, I kind of started to see that he was right. Yeah. So it takes a lot of discipline.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I always say nobody wants to hear how, how nervous the pilot is. You know, <laughs> nobody wants to hear. Like the pilots say, like, I know I've flown a hundred times, but I'm scared shitless. Do You realize we could crash at any second, even if it's for their sake. I found at times because I mean, I got, you know, a 22 year old, a 17 year old and now a two and a half year old. Um, And I have found that there are times when I'm scared shitless, when I don't have any idea what's going to happen. But faking it for them helps me, you, you know, fake like it. Yeah, to fake it like it's going to be fine. You know, and my daughter a few years ago had a major fucking freak out about some really terrifying climate uh, article, you know, about the about the direness of that. She's like 11 or 12 when this happens. So there's now I would give her a much more nuanced explanation. But at the time I was like, this is worst case scenario. This is really doom and gloom because it's supposed to scare us into making some actions that really need to happen. So, yes, we really need to do things, but we'll bounce back. We'll figure it out. We'll pull up out of the nosedive before we crash. I have no idea if any of that's true, but I got to tell her. Yeah. And it calmed her. You know, it made things better. You, so you see,
2: They need to have that hope. Yeah. But I also mentioned in my book that our, this generation, your two and a half year old, my four and a half year old, th- this is going to be the first generation of kids to grow up to, like, understand that the world might be ending because of climate and because of our actions from probably a pretty young age. I mean, they're talking about it in my kids' preschool. So Yeah,
1: they they know. Yeah, My son tells me sometimes, and this is, you know, tells me, because, like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like what's the point of anything I'm going to do? Like, why would I? Why would I work real hard to have a career? Why would, I, and, and there, you know, with the 21 year old, I'm like, I don't have any good, I don't have any good lies for that one other than just, I don't know, because what are you going to do? Curl up. You got to, you got to keep going, you know? I mean, that's just sort of the imperative of every living thing is to just kind of keep going and sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry that we fucked it up so bad for you.
2: And then sometimes you're like, well, they'll become the new warriors. But isn't that a lot of pressure to put on them? Like, they're not all going to turn into Greta Turnbergs, you know? Yeah. And and so. So, yes, it's it's challenging. But, uh, you know, just just dealing with all this stuff from a comedic essay point of view is what the book is about.
1: Right. Yeah. It's not a downer like this podcast. No, I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right, well, let me get to all that. you got the book, The World Deserves My Children. It's being uh, released on, when is that, November? November
2: 15th, but you can 15th. pre-order it now on my Instagram. It's very okay.
1: easy to find. Uh, and you, you still do a podcast with Moshe called The Endless Honeymoon.
2: Oh my God, I would love to have you on, give some advice to some of these 20 year olds who are calling all right. in. right, I'm, oh, you've got I'm kids. available, You've got I'm successful available. adult children. All now right.
1: this one is, I didn't know, about this. a TBS cooking competition show, Rat in the Kitchen. With Ludo Lefebvre. Do you know he's Ludo? He's a fancy he's I I've eaten at his restaurant. Uh he's fancy pants.
2: He has the best restaurant, uh, Le Petit Toit. Uh he's got a bunch of restaurants all over the country. But yes, he's a great French chef. And uh I wish I could say I learned to cook from him, but I only yeah, learned yeah. how to make one thing, an omelet. But yeah. it's really it's an amazing it's omelet.
1: A, it's an amazing, <laughs> I know. No, the difference between a good omelet and a and a You know, a truck stop omelet is huge. And you are also in the movie First Time Female Director, uh, co-starring me, uh, that Chelsea Peretti uh, wrote, directed and stars in which that uh, that process was when I saw her writing, directing and starring in something, I realized, oh, no, don't do that. (laughs) Don't don't do all three of those. Like, let someone do it. Let someone do one of those. Like you could do two of those. But don't do all three because that's too much.
2: The directing part is what I'm like. Uh, I couldn't.
1: It's, I was amazed that she did as amazing a job as she did.
2: It was so impressive. She was really she really prepped herself. She had, you know, the the help that that she needed, I think, because I I always wondered how does someone direct themselves? how do they see what it is, you know, but just having like the right partners there to like somebody that can tell
1: you. Yeah. Yeah. She
2: really figured it out. So I'm, I'm very impressed with that. And same as you, I'm like, check, not going to do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I asked her the first day, I was like, like, how do you, when do you have time to learn your lines? And she said, oh, I don't, I don't, you'll see. I don't know. I was like, okay, good. Um, and you have got another one. You're in a movie that was written directed by Bill Burr called Old Dads. He's a he's a genius.
2: He it was so great being being able to be in Chelsea's movie and his movie this year was because those are like my, some, two of my most influential comedians. Like they're so funny. They're the people I always you know like if you're in a comedy club and someone you know is on stage, you're gonna stay yeah. for them. I mean, those yeah. are the two I'll always stay for, yep. even if I have another show or whatever. So. I mean, Bill is just, I mean, you know, he's hilarious. Oh, I
1: got to sit next to him on a million Conan appearances just while he just went off, you know?
2: It's so hard watching someone like that do stand-up, too, because you're like, wait, I was thinking about something like that, but wait, his is so much more developed and better, and
1: it just makes
2: you, like, lightweight, want to give up. Right,
1: right. (laughs) So I have to, like...
2: Monitor the time I spend, in, yeah. you know, in people like that's presence.
1: Um, well, now the final question of this one is uh, what did you learned? And I mean, do you think do you have like advice to impart to people?
2: I would say if you're a woman and you're listening to this, you should, if you can afford it, freeze your eggs by 37. And then you have another 15 years if you want to have a baby. Your uterus can stay good to your 60. OK. So just, like, that's the cutoff time.
1: I know it's... 37,
2: 38, yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, ladies, you heard it. (laughs) Get those eggs yanked out. And then you got to
2: find someone who you deem uh, good enough to to fertilize one of them. Yeah. Or not. Or do it yourself.
1: Yeah. If if you're up for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, there's plenty of ways to get sperm. (laughs) My grandma always said... (laughs) There's sperm everywhere.
2: I just did family feud with my friend, Sabrina, and she's she and her wife were like looking for sperm. And she asked Sabrina Jalees Jalees, and she asked Steve Harvey if she could use some of his sperm. And he didn't say no. So you never know.
1: Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. If you get a deal or, you know, I don't know. Yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) Why not? That could be. Yeah, that could be that could be your own uh, a different kind of Patreon for people. (laughs) Uh, First, for different comedians, you know.
2: Well, Andy, you're a great actor. You are a great interviewer. Thank, you. Thank uh, you. You're such a nice guy, and I really am so happy that you had me on your show. Thank
1: you. And you're you're a you're a very good interviewer too, because you just wrapped up my show for me, <laughs> and I really appreciate that. Uh, and I appreciate all of you out there listening. And I'll be back next week uh, with another guest. It's probably not as good as Natasha, but you know what? Are you going to do? They can't all be golden. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rob Schulte. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. Executive produced by Joanna Solitaroff, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grahl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to The 3 Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a growing?
0: Can't you feel it in Or oh, you must be a I've got a big big love. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Wolf.